All right, well, this is the last episode in uh, the book of Nehemiah. And as you noticed, it is a sad chapter uh, because it's a chapter that highlights how the people failed in every area of the covenant that they had made with God way back in Nehemiah chapter 10. But not only is it a sad chapter, I think it's also a very important chapter. I think without this chapter or without passages like these, we could get the wrong idea of how God's renewal takes place in our lives, uh, how it works, how it's maintained, and where it's found. Without this chapter and others like it, I think a lot of times we'd be decimated by our own failures, and we would fail to look to God for his ongoing renewal in our lives. Now, to understand this episode well, you've got to understand the timeline of the book of Nehemiah and Nehemiah's life in particular. Uh, You might remember that Nehemiah had been installed previous to this chapter as the governor of Jerusalem, but the book began with Nehemiah doing a different job. It didn't start with Nehemiah as the governor of Jerusalem. He didn't grow up in Judah or in Jerusalem and then one day kind of climb the ranks and then run for the position of governor. He was a political official for the Persian government about eight months of travel time away from Jerusalem. And uh, Nehemiah asked the king, Uh, his boss, Artaxerxes, if he could leave Persia and go to Jerusalem to conduct the work of rebuilding uh, the temple or the city walls and repair the gates. And for 12 years, that's what Nehemiah had done. He had repaired and revived the walls and the people. And then for 12 years, King Artaxerxes allowed Nehemiah to continue serving as Jerusalem's governor. Now, The book of Nehemiah doesn't really detail what those 12 years were like. It focuses on the rebuilding effort and the initial revival, but you can imagine what those 12 years were like. They made a covenant. Nehemiah kept them accountable to the covenant that they had made. But the time came after 12 years of serving as the governor for Nehemiah to go back to do his normal job, to go back to being at the right-hand side of King Artaxerxes back in Persia. So he went back and left the people in Jerusalem with their local leadership. Men like Hanani, Nehemiah's brother, good and godly people who would be able to continue the work that Nehemiah started. But the text tells us in verse 6 and 7, that after some time back in Persia, and we don't know how long Nehemiah was there, but just think about it, it probably wasn't just a couple of months because it took Nehemiah at least eight months to travel back to Persia. It would take another eight months to go back to Jerusalem, so it wouldn't be worth it to just be there in Persia for a month or two. He was probably there for a number of years, but after some period of time, Nehemiah, it says, asked for leave from Artaxerxes to go back to Jerusalem a second time. Nehemiah's heart was in Jerusalem. I think for him, those were his favorite years of his life, those 12 hard but beautiful years in God's holy city. And so graciously, King Artaxerxes granted his request and sent him to Jerusalem once again. So Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem for 
what I think is one last hurrah. And what I mean by that is that by this time, Nehemiah is not a young man anymore. You have to imagine it took him a while to climb the political ranks in Persia. So you could imagine him being about 40 years old when he goes to Jerusalem the first time, serves there for 12 years, goes back to Persia. He might be around 60 years of age at this moment. This might be his final position in his long and storied career. And I think that the covenant that they made back in chapter 10, it looms over this whole passage. Now, Nehemiah had been the first to sign that document, along with over 80 other officials. In that document, they said, we will not intermarry with unbelievers. They said, we will tithe and keep the temple system and worship happening. And they said, we will keep the Sabbath. And I think as Nehemiah took that long journey from Persia back to Jerusalem, I think he was looking forward to being part of a community like that once again. He didn't have that in Persia. That wasn't that every person experienced. So I think he was looking forward to getting back to Jerusalem, the holy city, the sacrifices, the worship, the Sabbath, the temple, the priesthood, the purity. I think he was looking forward to that moment. But the text tells us that when Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, his hopes were dashed because the people were in spiritual disarray. Every single vow that they'd made before God in that signed covenant, they'd broken. So Nehemiah, he immediately went to work. He did what Nehemiah does, and he began to renew the people afresh. To me, in this episode, he presents as an old and mature man walking in close step with God, humbly committing his work to God, while helping to again renew the people of God. They'd broken all three vows that they'd made to God, so Nehemiah set out to correct each one of their sins and problems in this episode. Now just recounting or recapping the text, the first problem that Nehemiah discovered is that, or was that the house of God was forsaken. I'll remind you of the last line of their big covenant that they made to God, the last sentence of it, they said in Nehemiah 10, 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. Well, when Nehemiah returned, that's exactly what they were doing. They were neglecting the house of God. And they were doing that in numerous ways. And one of them was this atrocious, shocking discovery that Tobiah, who, had, who was one of Nehemiah's main opponents, Tobiah was living in Jerusalem. Now, Tobiah was an Ammonite, and as an Ammonite, he did not belong in the city of Jerusalem. And in the first few verses that we read today, it shows us that the people of Israel understood that. They knew the word of God. They knew that this Ammonite man did not belong there in Jerusalem. But not only was he in Jerusalem, he was living inside the temple structure itself. Eliashib, the high priest, who through intermarriage had become a relative of Tobias, had decided to take a chamber that was normally used to store tithes and offerings that had been donated to the priesthood to help pay them for their work. He cleared that chamber out so that Tobiah could use it as a studio apartment right there 
in the holy city and in the holy place. And speaking of the offerings that were meant for the priests, Nehemiah also discovered that the temple servants were not being paid because the people were not giving. So they had left Jerusalem, gone back to their fields, and were farming so that they could survive. But that meant that the temple itself was being neglected. Worship and sacrifice was not happening. Now the second problem that Nehemiah discovered in the passage was that God's Sabbath was being profaned. They were making wine on the Sabbath day. They were buying and selling on the Sabbath day. They were trading with foreigners on the Sabbath day. And Nehemiah was concerned about this because without the Sabbath, Nehemiah, or, uh, Israel would lose its distinctiveness and just kind of melt into the nations around them. And he was also concerned because previous generations had been put into captivity by God because of this exact sin. So they were threatening their future and the future of their children and their children's children with this particular sin. And the third problem that Nehemiah discovered was that God's people had been marrying unbelievers from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. This even went into the family of the high priest. Uh, he, one of the high priest's sons married the daughter of Nehemiah's main rival, Sanballat, the Horonite. And the fallout from these marriages is found in verse 24. It says that half of their children could not speak the language of Judah. And this was concerning to Nehemiah, not because he was a xenophobe, but because these children couldn't learn about God and his covenant if they didn't speak the language of God's people. So their inability to speak the language meant they weren't going to know who God was. And if they didn't know who God was in his covenant, then the future of the Israelite people was in jeopardy. Now, Nehemiah responded to all three of these problems, I think we might want to describe it as aggressively and straightforwardly. Uh, I don't think anybody in that day or after reading Nehemiah 13 would say, you know, Nehemiah, he's just such a nice man. <laughs> he's such a gentle soul with a sweet spirit. That's not how you would describe Nehemiah. And I point that out because in our modern time, being nice is often thought of as the essence of godliness, but there are times, just as is the case here with Nehemiah and was the case with Moses or David or Paul or even Jesus at times, there are times where it's not nice to be nice. Nehemiah could not be nice. He had to accomplish God's purposes. Now, when he discovered that the temple was forsaken, that God's house was forsaken, that, that Tobiah was living in a temple storeroom and that the temple workers weren't being paid. It says in verse 6 and 7, or 7 and 8, that Nehemiah was very angry. And this righteous anger led him to throw all of Tobiah's belongings out of the chamber, cleanse the chamber, and then bring the storage vessels back into the chamber. Then he went and confronted all the officials. He appointed a brand new treasury department and he restarted the tithing system all by himself. When Nehemiah saw that God's Sabbath was profaned, he warned everyone about their disobedience. Then he confronted the nobles that were in charge while he was gone. He reminded them all of their history. They went into captivity for the same behavior in their not-too-distant past. Then he commanded that the doors of the city would be shut, and he even stationed his own staff and then the Levites at the city gates 
to make sure to make sure that tradesmen would not enter into Jerusalem on the day of the Sabbath. And he warned them when they tried to come into the city, he said, if you try to break the Sabbath again, I will lay hands on you. And this wasn't like, I'm going to pray for you kind of thing. This was like old man strength, lay hands on you kind of stuff. And then when Nehemiah saw how God's people were compromised through intermarriage with unbelieving foreigners, it says in verse 25 that he confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair, which probably means that he was pulling out the beard hair of the men, which was a dishonor to these Israelite men. It was a real Will Smith on Chris Rock kind of moment in Nehemiah's <laughs> life. And after doing this, he forced them to take an oath not to practice this sin anymore, and he reminded them biblically that even the greatest of Israelite men, Solomon, had been destroyed by foreign women. And then he chased that young priest out, out of or away from his presence. And at each stage of Nehemiah's work, he prayed a private prayer to God. After he reinstituted the temple worship in verse 14, he said, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. After he re started the Sabbath, he said in verse 22 to God, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And after he confronted those sinful marriages and relationships, he said in verse 31 to God, remember me, O my God, for good. All right, so that's what happened in this episode, but what are we to make of this ending to the book of Nehemiah? You know, is this meant to be a downer episode? Should we walk away, in other words, thinking that renewal is impossible? I mean, that's what we're thinking about with this book, how God renews his people. And perhaps when we began this series and I talked about what renewal is and how God is working to renew us as his people, perhaps you were excited about that. Like, I need renewal right now. I'm hoping for renewal right now. I'd, lo I'd love to have this happen in my life. But perhaps this chapter is bumming you out a little bit. Like, well, apparently it's not truly possible. Is that what we're to get out of this chapter? Should we wish in our heart that the story had ended with chapter 12? The high note of praising God for the construction of the walls and the commitment of their future to the Lord. I think this is actually the perfect ending to the book of Nehemiah, and I'd like to show you why with three lessons that I think that we should get from this text. And the first one is this. We should learn from this passage that we should hope in God's continuous renewal. We should hope in God's continuous renewal. What I want to point out to you today is that in this passage, Nehemiah is still God's man. He's still God's messenger. He's still God's minister, he's still God's instrument working on God's people. Rather than seeing this as an end, a depressing end to an otherwise glorious and beautiful story, I think we should rejoice that this story and God is unlike Hollywood, at least for now. And I'll explain what I mean. What I mean is that if we were to write the story, we might wish to end the story with that high note of chapter 12. 
and everything was good. The praise, the commitment, the people living in Jerusalem, everything was on the right trajectory until it wasn't. Then they broke their covenant with God. But what I want you to notice is that even though they broke their covenant with God, God did not break his covenant with them. They were his people, and he had promised to Abraham years before they even existed. He said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to make a nation that comes out of you, and that will be the nation that blesses all of the nations. And God was still working hard to fulfill that promise amongst these Israelite people. So God sent Nehemiah at the tail end of Nehemiah's career and ministry to revive and renew the people one more time. And to me, this is God's grace. It shows us God's long-suffering nature, that he's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And even though we might hope for perpetual enthusiasm about our walk with God, God does not seem to have that same hope. It seems that God understands our frame. He knows what we're made of. You know, one day our ultimate resurrection, our ultimate renewal will come. But today, God knows that we are beset with peaks and valleys in life. And in both the highs and the lows, what we should do is pursue the newness of life that we have in Christ. But God knows that sometimes we don't because we're in a constant battle between the flesh and the spirit. Now, because this battle exists, what we should do is determine to feed the spirit, to walk in the spirit, so that we might not gratify the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5, verse 16. But what I'm trying to point out here is that God is aware of this battle and is continually at work to renew us as his people. The Father gives us his word and invites us into his family. The Son gives us his righteousness and lives to make intercession for us today. And the Spirit is our helper who explains God to us and works to bring us into further Christ-likeness, among other things. But we have to know that God is at work in this way. I think that God is looking for people like Nehemiah's generation, people who wanted to walk with him, but were struggling. And he works to bring them back to where their truest heart wants to be. This is God. You might remember the story of King David. David was a god hearted, God-fearing man who endured a ferocious battle with his flesh. In one of his worst episodes, he became simultaneously an adulterer and a murderer. And for a while, in silence, he thought nobody knew about his sin, but God knew, and God did what he needed to to rescue his man. Eventually, he rescued David by sending Nathan the prophet to him, but even before then, God was at work directly on David's heart. Once David was confronted and repented and then restored and renewed by God, he wrote this in Psalm 32. He said, of that time when he was silent, he said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, 
Your hand, God, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In other words, David looked back on that period of his life and he said, God, even though I was far from you, even though I had done these things, even though I had rebelled against you, you were doing what you needed to do to bring me back to the place of renewal. You were allowing a dryness into my soul. You were crushing me within so that I'd be ready for that rebuke and correction when Nathan brought it. Even in the glorious days of the book of Acts, the glorious story of the launch of the church, even in those days, the church was filled with ups and downs. The spirit moved mightily, the gospel went to the nations, but there was also, at times, corrupting sin in the church. There were also divisions instead of love. There were racial prejudices that slowed the gospel. There were arguments that led to bitter splits, and there was carnality and legalism that threatened to divide God's people, all there in the beautiful times of the book of Acts. So what we should expect, in other words, is that times of wavering will exist. God seems to expect them. He knows that they come. We should not judge those who are in that season of life. Jude said it this way in Jude 22. He said, and have mercy on those who doubt. That's a beautiful response. But it's not our natural way that we like to respond when believers are doubting God's goodness or plan or nature. We a lot of times just want to cut people off, but God is working to draw the prodigal home. That is always his heart. And I said earlier that we should rejoice that God is unlike Hollywood, at least for now. What I mean by that is that there will be a time that God, I think, fulfills even our Hollywood dreams. In other words, all the fictional happy endings, I think they point to an inward longing in the human soul, a longing that God has placed within us, that one day all of our stops and starts and restarts and failures will be replaced by our final resurrection, and then, praise God, we will never fail again. Every covenant that we will make before God for all of eternity, we will keep. It will be the beginning of an enthusiasm for God that never wanes, never fades, and only increases over time. Okay, but the second lesson that I want you to see today is that not only should we hope in his continuous renewal, his process of renewal in our lives, but I think this passage also shows us that we should welcome God's interruptive renewal in our life. You know, in this passage, the people are presented as people who had just, over time, drifted away from the commitments that they'd made to God. And we're warned about this in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 2 says that we as Christians must pay much closer attention to what we heard lest we drift away from it. But these people... In Nehemiah's day, they had definitely drifted, but still God was faithful. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.13 that if we are faithless, God remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. So what God did is God interrupted them with Nehemiah's jarring responses, I think as a mechanism to wake them from their slumber. Apparently, in God's mind, 
this was not a time or a season for gentle words and soft nudges towards holiness, but a time for bold confrontation. It's not always a time for this, but in that time, it's like God said to Nehemiah, like, get your UFC on. It's, it's time for you to boldly confront these people. You see, Nehemiah was trying to wake people up from a deep spiritual slumber or sleep. They'd had no idea how far they'd slipped, and so he needed to behave in this way. Now, I've never done this, but some of you might have the experience of trying to wake up a teenager that's in a very deep sleep, and maybe you've resorted to something like, I don't know, a pitcher of water or something like that to say, hey, it's time to get up, wake up, get out of your bed. And Nehemiah is like that pitcher of cold water saying to a sleeping people, it's time for you to wake up. Now, if God did not interrupt our lives, especially when we're off track or drifting from him, we would be like children who are never disciplined. You've seen that type of child, I'm sure. Never told no, eating whatever they want, sleeping wherever they want, wearing whatever they want, watching whatever they want. They are terrifying. <laughs> we all silently wonder what they're going to be like when they're grown up. But God is a good parent. So he enters the scene when needed and interrupts our way of doing things. And sometimes this is jarring. I'm sure that many of you in this room, you have stories of rebellion against God where God allowed something catastrophic or jarring or disruptive into your life that shocked you or jolted you back into getting real about your relationship with him. I know I do. But often, God will interrupt us in subtle ways. It might be a word of wisdom or knowledge that he gives to you from another believer. It might be a truth of scripture as you're reading it in your own life. I find a lot of times it's the example of godliness in someone else's life. We so often want to dismiss that when we see or are challenged by the way another believer is leading their lives. We want to dismiss that conviction, perhaps it comes, but it might be God's way of jolting us out of our normal flow, our accepted flow of the way that we're doing things. He might interrupt us with a pastor or a friend or a spouse or a mentor. But when they come into our lives, we shouldn't resist them. Though Nehemiah appeared harsh, he was God's gracious gift to God's people. And sometimes God will use you as a Nehemiah for those in need. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you curse anyone or that you tear out any beard hairs. You should just leave that to the pro, Nehemiah. But there are times that God will use you to rescue other people. Jude said it this way in Jude 23. He said, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. God might use you, in other words, to interrupt someone else. Now, there's a story in the book of Acts that I think captures this interruptive method of God. It's in the early pages of the book of Acts where everything was going great. The church had gotten off to an amazing start. Thousands of people were coming to Christ in Jerusalem. The prayer meetings were intense. Miracles were happening. New believers were being added to the church every single day. 
People were even selling their properties and their homes and donating the money to a communal living fund for the church there in Jerusalem. And one day, in the midst of all this energy and enthusiasm and momentum, two married church members decided that they wanted to make a donation of their own. So they sold a piece of land. But as they thought about it, they realized that they didn't want to give all the proceeds away. That was fine. But what wasn't fine was that when they gave, they acted as if it was 100% of the sale price. And the money was their own. They were free to keep it. They were free to sell it. They were free to give it. What they were not free to do, however, was pretend that they'd given all when they'd only given part. That was the sin of hypocrisy, and it was a grave danger for that early church and its effectiveness. God knew that that was a cancer that could spread and just kill the church before it even really got going. So God interrupted them. Peter received a word of knowledge about what they'd done and confronted them, and they still lied about it. And both of them dropped dead right there at the gathering. Okay, that's an interruption. <laughs> that's not what normally happens at church. How was church today? It was interesting. A couple of people dead just right there. God killed them. But this was God's way of breaking into their normal proceedings, proceedings that included the cancer of hypocrisy. God needed to stop them and simultaneously tell the next thousand generations that hypocrisy is to be avoided at all costs. And you know how they responded to God's interruption? It says in Acts 5, verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And after that, with the fear of God refreshed in their midst, they went into this new surge of power and fruitfulness for the kingdom. So, because it's helpful and life-giving, we should welcome God's interruptive renewal of our lives. But let me say one last thing, or give one last lesson today, and it's this. You know, we, we should be thinking about, looking forward to, hoping in God's continuous renewal and his interruptive renewal, but I think we should also look for God's lasting renewal. But there's something gracious here about God's willingness to continually restore and renew his people. But a question that we might ask, and we kind of asked at the beginning of this teaching, is, is there any hope for true and lasting change? Are we doomed as a people to a book of Judges-like cycle of revival followed by compromise, followed by defeat, followed by repentance, followed by revival, followed by more compromise? Is that our destiny as God's people? Is there any possibility of permanency of God's renewal and his renewing work in our lives? In other words, can it stick for us as Christians? And though part of the answer is found in a continual walk with God, the answer is yes, there is the possibility of permanence on this side of eternity. When Paul wrote to the Christian church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he taught that the old covenant that Moses had, that the people in Nehemiah's generation were under, 
He said that it was something that was passing away. He called it a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. But he said that when Jesus came, he brought a new covenant that is the ministry of the Spirit, not the ministry of death, a ministry that gives righteousness, not condemnation. And it's a covenant that exists in permanence rather than a temporary covenant like Moses received. And the difference between what these covenants produce, Paul talked about in that passage, in the difference between Moses and us as Christians. You see, what he said in that passage is that when Moses went to spend time with God, his face would glow. There'd be an afterglow of God's glory on his face. But the Old Testament tells us that when Moses left God's presence, he would cover his face with a veil, but it doesn't say why. But Paul in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 3 tells us why. He says, Moses was embarrassed of the fading glory. He didn't want people to see the fading glory. He didn't want people to know what I just got from God in there is not permanent. It's not lasting. It doesn't stick. I gotta keep going over and over and over again. But what Paul said is that we as Christians are different. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he said that we can take off the veil before God and we can keep it off because he permanently transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is a major lesson that the book of Nehemiah leaves us with today. Nehemiah's leadership and the people's energy could not produce true and lasting change. The problem is that they had these scriptures, these prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who years earlier had predicted, someday you're gonna come back to Jerusalem and I'm going to do a new work in you, and I'm going to take the law that was written on tablets of stone, and I'm going to write it on the tablet of your own heart. I'm going to change you from the inside out. They had all those promises reverberating throughout their minds, and they were hoping that they were the generation that got to live that out. But the law was not written on their hearts, as we can see in this passage. Still, they failed. They did not receive the interchange that was promised. So what Nehemiah does in ending the book this way is point us to a future fulfillment, a different age after the time of Nehemiah. And I'll have more to say about this next week on Palm Sunday, but for today, I want you to know that the answer is in Jesus. When he came he brought with him the new covenant. He brought with him the path to forgiveness, transferred righteousness, and permanent transformation. You see, we can whip ourselves up into an emotional frenzy about God sometimes, but our flesh cannot produce anything real or lasting. We might cry during the worship songs. We might feel inspired during the sermon. We might be committed to God during the plea or the invitation, but at the end of the day, just as it is at the end of this book, we must look to someone outside of ourselves for true change. Over and over again, we have to look to Jesus for lasting renewal. We must abide in him because when we do, he abides right back in us and his life renews us and produces fruit through us the fruit of character, the 
fruit of transformation and the fruit of impact on the lives of others. But it's all Jesus. And Nehemiah ends his book by pointing us in Jesus' direction. Like I've told you before, this book for the ancient Israelite was the last book of the Old Testament. It's the final historical book of the Old Testament. It's the last thing that happened. And now they're waiting for the day that would come where something would happen where they could be changed from the inside out. And that has happened with Jesus. Amen?